You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, for the uh, most of the years of my ministry here at Emmanuel, there's been another big church down the road called the chapel. And uh, the pastor at the chapel, well, I'll tell you this first. A number of years ago, we've heard that Rick Hawks was coming back to the Fort Wayne area. He'd pastored here before, but he was coming back. And, and actually, some of the people who were attending here then, and we were a smaller church, some of the people attending here then said, when Rick Hawks comes back, we're leaving Emmanuel and going with him. They did. <laughs> it, sh- it shocked me, but they left. And I'll tell you what, it has been such a dynamic church, and Rick has been such a special friend. The problem is, he's always been preaching at his church, and I've been preaching at my church, so we couldn't go and preach for one another. But he is now retired from the chapel, and I ask him, would you come on Thanksgiving Sunday and preach to my people, because I think they'd love to hear you. I will just say quickly that... Rick has been one of those people that we meet, we've met for countless breakfasts and lunch and meetings and so forth. And he's always been not only a friend, but a mentor. I, I can ask him questions and he has an insight that most people don't have. He, he's a teammate. And I'll just tell you one quick story. We were at a restaurant some years ago and a gentleman from his church walked up. He knew me, he knew Rick. And he says to Rick, so you're having lunch with the enemy. And Rick says, oh, no, Denny's my friend. The devil's my enemy. And that gentleman, you know, gulp. Uh, but, uh, but that's been the way our relationship has been, and I'm so thankful for him. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to introduce Rick. Kathy, would you stand up, too? Where's Kathy? Rick and Kathy, stand up. And Rick, come on up. Well, good morning. I noticed that uh, Denny was extraordinarily kind and graciousness uh, using terms like mentor. Uh, I'll gladly sit at his feet to learn any day. Uh, This is a, a late thank you. Your church has been so kind to me and to the chapel over these last 27 years. We did not have a building when we started. We rented schools, and that works on weekends. But what do you do when you have a Tuesday afternoon funeral? You call Manual Community Church and say, we're homeless. And countless times, I don't remember how many funerals, how many weddings, how many special events we've asked for your help, and you just opened the doors of your building and staffed with technology people and sound people so that we could have a funeral or some other meaningful service. You've just been generous to us. And uh, so uh, about uh, 20 years too late. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about Thanksgiving, but let me lead us in prayer one more time. Lord, I ask you to put your words in my mouth, your thoughts in my head, and that today that you would speak in spite of me in Jesus' name, amen. We're, we're just about the Thanksgiving, but if you walk into the stores, it looks like Christmas. And the product line, I went to the grocery store and they cleared out everything that I knew where it was in the grocery store and put Christmas stuff all the way down. 
And many of you are going through the, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, what do I want for Christmas? What so-and-so want for Christmas? This little boy knew exactly what he wanted for Christmas. He wanted a bicycle. And he said, dear Jesus, I've been a very good boy this year, and I'd like to have a bicycle. He realized that wasn't true. So he ripped that up and he wrote, Dear Jesus, I've tried to be a very good boy this year. <laughs> and he realized that wasn't even true. So he went into the living room where they had a nativity set and he picked up the statue of Mary, took Mary to his bedroom and put her under the mattress and wrote for third letter, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... <laughs> That, that's more of a Christmas story, but I don't think I'm going to be here on Christmas. <laughs> I love telling that story. Well, today we want to talk about Thanksgiving, and there's a passage in the Gospel according to Luke where Dr. Luke recounts for us how 10 lepers came to Jesus. But before we go any further, let me talk a little bit about leprosy. Leprosy today is a very specific diagnosis. But in the first century, it wasn't. It was a generic term to discover, to describe any type of open wound that won't heal. It could be any number of things. But there was one particular kind of leprosy that was most gruesome. It's the kind that your nerves died. And when your nerves die, you don't have any feeling of sensation. So a leper would have cuts on his hands because he didn't know the knife was that sharp. Our bone might be broken, and they don't know why they're limping. It was a disease that was, in some cases, contagious, and in others, not highly contagious, but for the first century, it was a gruesome, gruesome experience to be a leper. If you were a leper, the law required you to live in a leper colony, away from your family and your friends. It was a gruesome life physically. It was a brutal life emotionally. You were isolated. Your only companions were other sufferers of a leprosy. Then it got worse. If you ever needed to come out of your colony, and you had to, somebody had to draw water, you could only go out if you were announcing yourself at every intersection. Unclean! Unclean! And you watch people scatter from you. And these 10 lepers only had each other. And they hear this story about Jesus and how he heals people. And they came to Jesus Luke chapter 17, and said, Jesus, have mercy on us. Jesus, heal us. And they all were healed. As they went, they were healed. And one of them turned around and came back to say thank you. Let me pick up the story at that particular point. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. If you don't know the story, Samaria was one time part of the United Kingdom of Israel. But through a succession of history of Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians, things changed. And these were not Jewish people in Samaria. They were people that may have had some Jewish blood but most likely they were people who were brought in by the Assyrians and the Babylonians to repopulate as they took the brains out of Israel like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And so this, this was the, a term of derision. He was a Samaritan. 
And there's several stories in the Bible that are based upon the idea that Samaritans were not good people in the eyes of the Jewish people. That's why it's so shocking that Jesus said there was a good Samaritan. So these people have been cured of a horrific disease, and they're so excited to get on with their life, they didn't even stop to thank Jesus. But one of them came back and thanked Jesus, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except the foreigner? And then he said to him, Arise, go, your faith has made you well. This story shows disappointment in Jesus' mind. He's looked at the situation and only one came back. It shouldn't have been that way. It should have been ten, or at least if it was going to be ten there were healed, there ought to be at least a majority that came back, but none of the people of his own people came back to do a simple thank you, Jesus, for changing my life. Now I don't live in a colony. Now I'm not separated from my grandchildren. Now I can live life to its fullest, and you made that possible, but I don't have time to stop and say thank you. Jesus' disappointment, maybe a stronger would be that Jesus was displeased. If you have a Bible, you might turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16. 1 Thessalonians, a letter written by Paul to a group of Christians living in the city called Thessaloniki. And he had gone there on a missionary trip, and this is the place where Paul was driven out of town because these men were turning the world upside down. Wouldn't it be great if the problem the news was reporting is Christians are busy turning the world upside down and they're doing a pretty good job at it? I think we'd take that as one of the best compliments we could receive. But that was a term of derision once again. These men are turning the world upside down, meaning they've changed the social order. They've changed the rules of the game. And they're now talking about Jesus and grace and forgiveness and healing and hope. And Paul was driven out of town, but he wouldn't leave them without knowing that he had a contact. So he left some of the people back behind to do discipleship work. And then Paul moved forward, going on with his missionary journeys, and now he's writing back to those people that he was so uh, endeared to. And that letter is called First Thessalonians. Towards the end of it, he rattles off a whole lot of commands, instructions. And in the middle of all that, there are three that are pushed together it reads like this, be joyful always. By the way, that's the shortest verse in the Bible in the original Greek language. The English shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. We know that one, but uh, there's a little competition between these two verses. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're instructed here to give thanks. It's not a national holiday. It's not Thanksgiving weekend that he's referring to. He's talking about an atmosphere, a way we live our life. It's what makes our home atmosphere, joy. When people ask about the chapel, what's the formula? Our formula was pretty simple. It was the teaching ministry's job to present hope, and the worship department's job to present joy. If you left with hope and joy, we thought it was a good day. 
Paul says, your life should be marked by joy. Continuing prayer and giving thanks in all circumstances. Why should we give thanks? I'm going to give you three quick reasons today. Number one, giving thanks pleases our Heavenly Father. When you say thank you, when you live a life of gratitude, Jesus is looking down and he's smiling and his head's nodding yes and he's got your best interest in mind and you're earning not your salvation, but you're earning his gratitude because you showed him gratitude. Jesus was disappointed that the 10 lepers did not come back. Only one did. We wonder, why wouldn't they come back? And rather than diagnose them, I'd rather diagnose me. I should do a better job of being thankful, grateful. One of the requirements, if you're going to be thankful, there's a prerequisite, and that is that you're humble. Because if you're not humble, you think everything good in your life is because you're so wonderful. A friend of mine who led me to Christ many years ago was speaking, and afterwards he was interviewed, and the interviewer asked him, if this whole Jesus thing, this whole grace thing is so good, why is it that so many of the smart people and the successful people don't believe in your Jesus? His answer stuck with me for 50 years now. The more one learns and the more one earns, the easier it is for them to trust in themselves and fail to see their need for God. Humility is a requirement to give thanksgiving. The more a person learns and the more they learn, the easier it is for them to depend upon themselves. Pride is a barrier to gratitude. Pride is one of the things that God hates. In the book of Proverbs, it says, there are six things that God hates. Nope, make that seven. That was a poetic way of just getting attention to the reader. He didn't go, oh, I forgot one. Number one on the list is a proud look. That's what God hates, a proud look. Pride keeps us from being humble. Humble keeps us from giving thanks. There's a story about King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He was very impressed with himself. And he looked out from the walls of his city and said, isn't this the great Babylon that I have built with my own hands? Isn't this the place that was built to celebrate my glory? And the moment he said that, a voice came from heaven and said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're being judged and you're going to be sent out of the palace, out of your kingdom. You're going to be a wild animal. You're going to graze and eat grass like the goats and the cows. And the moment those words were spoken, he was devastated to lose his sanity and his health. And he lasted, God said, for seven years before he was willing to acknowledge the Most High is God. God has made us, and he has made us for himself. And our life purpose is to please God. Let me take you through just a quick list of verses to see how overwhelming the call on your life is that you belong to God, that he's made you for himself. And in making you for himself, it's our life's mission to please him. When we went through those three statements, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, it ends with, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But here's a list of other verses. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, or this translation, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Next verse. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created everything, and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. We were made by God, and we were made for God, to bring him pleasure, to please him. Philosophers have talked over the years of what does it mean to have a coherent philosophy of life, a worldview that is comprehensive. In other words, by comprehensive, every person needs this. Four things that every person needs to know where they came from, origin, know how to live, morality, know why I'm here, meaning, and destiny, where am I going? Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Jesus answers all of those. But for our point today, we want to make this, that meaning in life is that I am here to please God. That's why I was made. The Reformation, roughly the year 1500, 1517 to be precise, when Luther knocked on the door of the Wittenberg Church, the Reformers all had different ideas of what the Reformation should look like. We were one church, the Catholic Church, all of a sudden we have new denominations coming up and they were trying to figure out what is it that the Reformation is bringing about. And they came up with what was called the Westminster Confession. And the Westminster Confession was long and so they had to give you a Reader's Digest condensed version called the Shorter Catechism. And the first question, it's 107 questions and answers. And the first question is, what is the chief duty of man? In other words, God, why are we here? And the answer is, that we are here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Two purposes there. You're here to glorify God, but you're also here to enjoy God. Never lose sight of the fact that he loves you and he's made you to be with him for all of eternity. So why should we praise him? Because that is our life's purpose and he is worthy of our praise. Number two, we give praise because it promotes our relationships. Our relationships are better if we give thanks. If you live in a family where the word thank you never comes up, there's going to be a spirit of demanding, a spirit of entitlement, a spirit of anger because you're not getting what you feel like you deserve. And God says, don't worry about what you're getting Think about what you're giving. And you can heal many family conflicts, many business conflicts with just a spirit of gratitude. There are two parts to thanksgiving, recognition and appreciation. To thank someone, you have to recognize they did something and you have to appreciate it 
So, we need to do a better job of observing and recognizing what other people have done for us. It improves our relationships, it promotes healthy family, healthy businesses, and healthy churches if we have a spirit of thankfulness and gratitude. Most of you are familiar with the Proverbs chapter 31. It's about the virtuous woman. And notice some of the things that she does. She selects wool and then flax and works diligently with her hands. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She opens up her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Isn't it great that she does all this? What's even better is she does all this and people recognize it. So it ends with, a wife of noble character, who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. That's the importance of knowing what somebody is doing that's impacting your life positively. If we want to create, create atmospheres of health and joy, in our relationships, master the art of being thankful. You're thinking, perhaps, Rick, you don't know my husband, or you don't know the company I work for. It's a cutthroat business. All I can say is, you're right. I don't know. But I do know this, that when God said to give thanks in all circumstances, he knew your husband. I don't, but he does. And he says, greet him with thanksgiving. There's a story told, probably not true, but it's a good story. So if we just take it as an illustration, I think that's fair. This man had gone to a counselor and said, I can't take the marriage anymore. We're, we're, we have irreconcilable differences. I, I just want out. The counselor said, why don't you try something? Why don't you try treating her like a queen. He says, what do you mean? Well, I mean, if she asks you for something, do it without complaining. Just joyfully do it. If she tells you she wants you to change, change. If she tells you we need to help, help. Just treat her like a queen for the next six weeks. And we'll meet every Friday to see how it's going. So at the end of week one, he meets up with the counselor and the counselor said, how'd week one go? And he said, nothing new in my book. I tried, but she didn't even notice. Well, come back next Friday. Comes back next Friday, and he said, how did it go? And over the next weeks, it got better and better till they came to the sixth week. The counselor said to the man, how's it going? Good. Are you going to get a divorce? Divorce? Why would I divorce her? She's a queen. <laughs> and people become what we treat them to become. If we treat people with harsh words and stern looks and threats, they're going to say, you're a danger. You think I'm a danger. They just begin to live out that expectation. What we think is so powerful that it changes the course of our future. There's a cute little line that I love. Kathy and I have been playing. Kathy's my wife. We've been playing with this phrase this week. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. If you think you can, you can. And if you think you can't, 
You can't. I was, too many stories. Oh, okay, I'm going to tell this one. I hope you all know the name George Glass. George Glass was the track coach at, uh, cross-country coach at Taylor University, uh, just a gem of a guy. And we got ready for a mini marathon, and uh, I said to Coach Glass, I'm thinking about getting some new shoes. There's lighter weight shoes for racing than for, for, for the track meet itself. Should I get a pair of racing shoes while I go faster? And he said, do you think you will? Meaning, if you think so, it'll probably help. If you don't think so, it probably won't help. We have to take our mind and to quote the Apostle Paul, bring it under the control of God's Holy Spirit so that we're filling our minds with the way he would want us to treat people and to honor them. Treat them like a queen, they'll act like a queen. Is that going to work in every case? No, but it will improve everyone else's quality of life to some degree. Third, giving thanks protects ourselves. You can promote healthy relationships by creating an atmosphere of thanksgiving. This came to me this week. Uh, the opposite of thanksgiving is not unthankfulness. The opposite of thankfulness is resentment. If we're not careful and we don't practice the art of thanksgiving, we are likely to become resentful of that person or that situation. It's our nature to remember past injuries. We violate the clearest definition of love in 1 Corinthians by keeping records of wrongs. And the soon that record of wrongs becomes an internal cancer that ruins relationships. There was a non-believer, to my knowledge, M. Scott Peck, a renowned psychiatrist of the last generation. Peck said, I was doing my residency at Boston Hospital, and one night a lady came in, and the medical people said, she's medically fine, but she won't leave the waiting room. You're the psych, you go talk to her. M. Scott Peck said, I went and I listened to the lady as she told me, I have six kids, I've raised them. I broke my back on those kids. Do you think one of them would invite me into their home? Not one of them. I have no place to live. I have nobody who cares about me. And not one of those kids would take me into their home. What's a woman supposed to do in America, in a country like this, with kids like that? And M. Scott Peck said, did you say you want me to tell you? Yes, tell me why. He said, I had nothing to do. So I said, because you're mean and unpleasant. Relationships constantly need the oil of love and kindness and goodness and thanksgiving. It's one of those things that changes people's lives. There's nothing more powerful than saying to somebody, thank you. Now, my confession is, normal habit for me over the years was be to go to McDonald's on the way to Sunday morning church. I run best on a 12-ounce Coca-Cola with lots of ice. And when I'd drive up, I'd make my order, I'd pull over the window, I'd hand my money out the window, never even making eye contact, just handing money, getting my Coke, and I'd say thanks. Then there's this worker shortage, and I pull into McDonald's, and it's closed. And I don't have my Coca-Cola with extra ice. And then they reopened. 
And now when I go in there, I say, I'd like a Coca-Cola with extra ice, please. And when I pull up the window, I say, thank you so much for working. It's amazing that you're willing to get up on a Sunday morning and work. What time did you start work? She said, I got up at four to be here at five. I said, thank you. All of our lives are better. Uh, they're, they're now my best friends. <laughs> Not because I'm saying thank, for, thank you, but because they're doing something that makes my life a little bit better. And we, we're more comfortable doing that with strangers. There was a 40-day dare put out a few years ago. Let me remind you of the 40-day dare. It's to take the next 40 days and do something special for the person you want to do it for, perhaps your spouse. And over the next 40 days, each day you do some act of kindness to them. You pick up something they left on the floor. Uh, you cleaned out the other person's car. You do something over those days to see if the person ever notices it and on what day they notice it. And almost every person that's done that said, well before 40 days, they said, what's going on? You're different. You can change the way people live their life, how they feel about you, how they feel about church, how they feel about God, by saying thank you. I can come into churches and very quickly assess what type of church it is. It's either one based upon love or one based upon law. When you come into this church, you know this place is about love. And we can only tell people oh, so much about Christ, there also has to be some validation in our life. And one of the validating experiences you can have is giving thanks. What I find so fascinating is there's a new field of psychology called positive psychology. Not, that's, that's not saying that other psychologists are negative psychology. It's that most of the time when we think of psychology, we think of depression, uh, anxiety, phobias, and we, we're grateful we have counselors who can help us with that. But positive psychology says, how do we generate happiness? How do we generate a better spirit? How do we create joyful atmospheres? And so this whole new field of positive psychology is popping up. Harvard did a study, and they took three groups of people. The first group was the pilot group, and the, not the pilot group, the, the, the test standard. They were told, write down random thoughts about how your day has been. They went to the next group and said, write down all the good things that happened to you today. They went to the third group and said, write down all the things that were frustrating for you today. When it was over, the results were that there was no significant change in the life of the person that just wrote random daily thoughts. But the, the ones who went further and uh, became detailed about what wasn't working in their life, they were about twice as unhappy 10 weeks later than the people who had done the positive listing. So if you want to have a better effect in your own life, then think positive thoughts of which Thanksgiving is most fundamental. But this isn't about self-help. It's about recognizing that Jesus Christ is our only savior, our only forgiver, and we owe all thanks to him. Now what do I do? You start living a life that's worthy of him, trying to please him. You try to promote better relationships and you extend your own good spirit if you'll be thankful. 
He is the one that changes us. Uh, Denny brought up the good relationship that we've had. We also had a great relationship with um, Sunrise at a Boyd. And when Pastor Buck was dying, a man who had been at the chapel left the chapel and went to Sunrise. And when he saw me, he always felt guilty that he had left the chapel. I didn't think anything of it, but one day he said, I just need to explain to you why I'm not at the chapel. I said, you owe me no explanation. He said, no, I want you to know what happened. I went to Sunrise first and came to faith in Christ there. We came over to the chapel for some other reasons, but that's where I came to faith in Christ. And these were his words. Stan saved me. Oh, no, back up. Jesus saved me. Stan got the, the assist. <laughs> one final study I'll pass by you. This one you may not like. At a university professor, researchers at Wharton School, prestigious business school in Pennsylvania, randomly divided university fundraisers into two groups. One group made phone calls to solicit alumni donations in the same way they always had. The second group assigned to do work on a different received a pep talk from the director of annual fundraising. When it was all tallied up, the people who had had the positive pep talk made 50% more contacts. I don't like context calling, soliciting, but you've got to be impressed with the statistics that a positive talk was a, cha- a game changer for them and it doubled their productivity. Well, we could talk on and on about the values of the prescription of Thanksgiving, but let me just give you a quick list to honor our time and get us out of here. What time are we supposed to be done? About 10 minutes ago? Okay, so we're going to make this fast. The gratitude can change your life. It's an anecdote for pride, entitlement, bitterness, resentment, depression caused by purposelessness, and it can reduce conflicts and relationships, and it can even ward off a little bit of narcissism. That's the value of being a thankful person. Final question you might be thinking is, how how do I create such an atmosphere? I think the answer is this. It's an old hymn, I I don't sing. I quote, count your many blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings and see what God has done. There have been times when I've been so frustrated with somebody that I had to say, why am I so frustrated? And I went home and I wrote down five or six things that I liked about that person. And my own soul was healed by just being attentive to others, being thankful. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Would you pray with me? God, it is not my nature to be thankful. It is not my nature to even see the depth of which other people have helped me. So I will say with uh, David, examine me, search me, O God, and know my heart. I invite you to pray the same prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Lord, we want to live a life that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen.